10,000 baby boomers hit retirement age every day in the United States, and that will continue every day for at least the next decade. The old oldest ratio, which is a measure of a population's ability to care for its aging adults, was a healthy 31 back in 1970. Today, it's around seven. That's Jeremy Powell, our guest today on the Oliver Wyman Health Podcast. Jeremy is here to talk about aging on your own terms and how cultural differences shape our end-of-life care decisions. The Oliver Wyman Health Podcast is brought to you by the global management consulting firm, Oliver Wyman. To learn more, follow us on Twitter at OWHealthEditor and subscribe on iTunes. Hello, and welcome to the Oliver Wyman Health Podcast. I'm Helen Leith, partner in the Health and Life Sciences Practice here at Oliver Wyman. In this episode, we're speaking with Jeremy Powell, Chief Executive Officer and founder of Acclivity Health Solutions. Jeremy's been a healthcare IT professional for over two decades. His company, initially made up of a world-class technologist, an operations thought leader, a leading palliative care doctor, and our guest, Jeremy, focuses on caring for patients with advanced illness. He's going to share some of his top solutions for better care delivery and talk a little about the unique machine learning and technology strategies he's developed at Acclivity along the way. Jeremy, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Helen. Thank you for having me. It's our pleasure. I was um, intrigued. I came across a BBC Ideas clip where an author named Kevin Toulos, who's Irish, is describing his father dying of pancreatic cancer. Mm-hmm. And he was at home in Ireland, and the house was filled with people, family and friends, who were chanting and praying out loud and singing, almost cradling him was the word he used, cradling his father, you know, to the other side on that journey. Um, and I was struck by that, and I was thinking a bit about the conversation that we're going to be having in terms of end-of-life care and versus palliative care. And what role do you see cultural differences playing in how patients and their loved ones perceive these end-of-life care options and their values? Do you have a particularly memorable story where you've got patients and caregivers or providers having drastically different perceptions on end-of-life care and on aging more broadly? Yes, I think it's a, it's a significant social determinant with respect to end-of-life choices as just one example. Um, what is it Maya Angelou says? We're more alike than we're different. And I think that's mm-hmm. true until mm-hmm. it comes to death. <laughs> um, I'm going to borrow from someone. You, you, you mentioned a gentleman uh, over from the United Kingdom. I have, uh, I'm going to borrow from Alan Keller. Um, mm. Death is a social relationship uh, in which culture, values, emotions, and personal relationships actually dynamically alter the physiological process of dying and death's meaning. So your example is a perfect one where it was a celebration. There was a cradling of, of the father. There was this, it, it was an, a, a joyous uh, event. It's almost a placebo effect for the patient himself having this incredible energy around this transformation. Um, that's one example of a very positive experience for many others. And let's take, you know, the minorities in the United States as an example, an African-American population who often have a sense of mistrust of the system Mm -hmm. itself Mm -hmm. and of providers because of past injustices potentially, um, with healthcare uh, interactions because of access issues they've had, but also the religious, uh, beliefs of, of that minority as just an example, um, play a significant role about what they would think is in scope at the end of life relative to choosing a uh, comfort measure as a, as a, an advanced directive over, you know, do everything on the curative side. Um, minorities in the sort of Asian community um, also have some interesting 
sort of phenomena that take place. There's this notion of an Amer- Americanism or, or acculturation. So how much you take on the uh, popular dress, the popular music, the popular food of your current culture, be it the United States in this example, or hold on to that of your motherland, actually determines whether you take the end-of-life perspective of that current culture or of your former culture. And certain Asian populations, end-of-life interventions, including ventilation machines, can approach 96-97% choose that. Mm. Oh, interesting. As in our case for sort of the traditional American, most Americanist person, we take that much significantly less, you know, to the tune of the other, to the other end of the extreme. Um, you, you mentioned, have I seen things happen that are sort of specific? Um, I, I think of, you know, me getting into this, of the business of acclivity really was, was driven by a couple of personal interactions. I think everyone who operates in this space has some personal reason for getting there. Um, mine was my grandmother, but more more telling even bef- before that was, you know, you mentioned the founder, who was a palliative care Vanderbilt trained clinician. Um, mm-hmm. During her fellowship in, at Vandy, her father actually got the pancreatic cancer diagnosis. Oh. And so imagine having a person on your team who's not only the clinician in the trade, but also the family member and getting to learn firsthand the experience. So that was a big driver for us really investigating how this thing was going to be the lever that could cause a catalyst for significant sea change and how care gets delivered in this particular space. Many patients spend the last days of their lives staring at the four walls of an intensive care unit. What's being done to improve end-of-life care and make people's last days spent on their own terms? If you look sort of across the United States nationally, the, the, you know, the numbers are, are pretty astonishing. 70% of folks actually wish to die at home, but uh, mm-hmm. about 68% uh, die within our system. Uh, and in some parts of the United States, about 80% of, of persons are dying in the ICU, which is, mm-hmm. you know, if you sort of looked at quality of life, might be the toughest place for a person to pass. Um, it's very clinical. Often folks aren't lucid. Um, family members have to make some tough decisions. Yeah, uh, and yeah. so the the question is, you know, what's what's changing? What's at the heart of of opportunities to improve end of life? And I think we're at a um, a sea change uh, inflection here. Um, it almost has to be a sea change, to be honest with you. You know, if you if you go back to just the 2010 study of the Institute of Medicine, uh, you know, they deemed about 250 billion dollars of Medicare spend is is futile spend or wasteful spend. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that lever, um, plus some of the things happening both nationally and at the state level, are becoming sort of these macro forces that are really putting pressure on this kind of system working differently in the future. And so the things we're seeing being done are kind of interesting relative to sort of, we'll start macro. Like the states themselves are adopting, you know, maturing models around physician order for life-sustaining treatment, right, which is almost this advanced directives on steroids, right? 48 out of 50 states support some model of that, which means the patients are making decisions about, you know, what do I want to happen at the end of life? And if I can't speak for myself, what do I want the person speaking for me to do? Federally, you know, managed care for, uh, you know, sort of Medicare fee-for-service kinds of patients are getting really new incentives to drive care options to focus more on the care of a patient uh, and less on the procedures and the fee schedule for medication therapies and medication itself. And that's certainly happening in the med advantage world. Um, And so those are the big macro things we see happening. 
Okay. Um, there are big shifts that are happening in all parts of the continuum. And I, and I mean the roles that are played by persons, professional or layman in that, in that continuum. So for instance, just take palliative care. Um, that's really about coordination and sort of involving the patient in the, in the experience. Right. And so my, I laugh when I say this often, but palliative care, if people understood what it is, everyone would ask for it. You know, mm-hmm. if, if it was a new medication, the <laughs> FDA would approve it. I mean, that's the stuff that it is. And what's happening on the ground is hospitals and acute care is evolving. You know, so more than 90% of hospitals now have palliative care as just an example. Um, but back to that, that idea of what, what's happening in the roles in the, in the, in the exam room, for instance. So the provider role is shifting. Um, you know, the greatest generation, the folks that, you know, took us through multiple world wars and um, birthed the baby boomer generation, the provider role in that generation was one where the white coat, the physician was sort of a savant. That paradigm is certainly different for the baby boomer generation, and we're we're you know we're we're going to see pressures from the family really wanting to be more informed about their options. Have you have you bought a house ever using the old MLS books? Do you remember they used to print them out of weekly? <laughs> I remember the old MLS books well. Right. So imagine today buying a house through that that lens where you're waiting on the comps that could come out every Friday and the sales that come mm-hmm. out the next Monday, mm-hmm. right? Medicine is at that place where incredible things are coming online that look like Zillow or truly or realtor.com. Um, and I think that's going to be the, the sea change catalyst, the lever for that change in medicine is that we're going to start these technology capabilities are really going to start informing the patient perspective and you know, consumerism isn't just going to happen in the sort of the expected retail locations that that we're going to have a very different perspective, that the white coat isn't savant. They're one of the persons that can help us make this journey and they can tell us if we're summiting, um, you know, to, you know, to the end of life through advanced illness. They can tell us where oxygen is set up. They can tell us where you know, how to get acclimated at base camp so you can have the appropriate things and we can give ourselves the time to have those conversations. That's what we're seeing change, um, you know, in that in that paradigm between the provider, family, and patient. Stepping back and thinking about our aging population more broadly, not specific to end of life, but kind of, you know, aging in place, dealing with kind of the, the, the throes of getting older but having a much longer life expectancy than we perhaps had 50 years ago. How is machine learning advancing care delivery for our aging population? So we have an we have an a personal like personnel staff. We have an incredible set of health economists, um, data scientists, et cetera. But you'd have to have millions of those persons mm-hmm. to be able mm-hmm. to get even a, a you know the basic level insight about what machine learning can give us. Um, so we're about to be able to, with machine learning, start really advancing our prognosis capabilities. Um, models that we've seen, you know, come out of Stanford last November, um, things we're doing inside of our own business today are starting to show near 95% uh, accuracy relative to time series prognosis uh, predictions. So imagine if you knew, for real, no kidding, that what was a, a six-month to greater than 95%, you wouldn't do another round of chemotherapy. Yep. 
Yep. You wouldn't look at the specifics of, of more time in clinic. You would do much more to tie off loose ends with family, et cetera. Um, now, I'm not looking for us to ever be, you know, enter interior medical records here and we're going to tell you your death date. That's not what this is for. This is to help with some very subjective things that happen around families as they as they start to take on a, an, another set of um, condition management. So they're already managing diabetes, hypertension, high cholesterol, and they get a, a COPD um, diagnosis. Now that could be 10 years, but wouldn't it be nice to know when you're not feeling well across that 10 years that parts of what's in your medication therapy today can be relaxed because um, they aren't going to complicate what will what will be likely the cause of your death and start treating the patient from a life quality perspective versus today's sort of medicine is, you know, I, I see you, therefore I get, you know, 105% of my Medicare mm-hmm. amount for treating mm-hmm. you for that particular time. I love the vision that you've described there. Thank you. Yeah, I think it's going to take shape. Um, I, I certainly be- I believe that empowering people with information allows for better decisions to happen across the spectrum. And the rising risk population, which hasn't been focused on, which I think is part of your question, is how do we do things to allow folks who today could be independent from a cognitive uh, capability, from a physical, I'm mobile, I'm ambulatory, I'm I'm aware, I'm lucid, I I can do, you know, activities of daily living, which is all the hygiene and clean cleaning Mm -hmm. components, but Mm -hmm. I also can do my ADSLs, which are manage my finance. In what world would we want to strip that person of their independence? Um, that we may have to, over time, help them do parts of their life in their home that become more difficult as disease progresses, but still we should treat them first as persons and second as complications that happen to be arising because of conditions <laughs> they face. I love that. Final question, Jeremy, and we ask this of all of our podcast guests. If you had no limitations on resources, money or talent and the sky was the limit, what would you fix about healthcare? This is going to sound very different than a technical answer. I'm probably more aligned typically to technology, but honestly, I think I would provide for every person facing an advanced illness, um, a serious life-limiting illness, even if it's going to you know, be a 10-year trajectory. I think I would provide uh, a multifaceted subject matter expert as an advocate for all of those patients. Today, you'd start with persons doing it, you know, someone who you could cross-train sort of clinically, you know, clinical, emotional, behavioral, Mm -hmm. social, Mm -hmm. psychosocial, chaplaincy, financial, that person that helps a family sort of, you know, when you get this diagnosis, this, this extra support for all of the family decision making that happens. Because the reason why I think is pretty, it's pretty telling of where medicine is today. You get an advanced diagnosis and, and people's natural inclination is to react with, with fear. Mm-hmm. And so if it's a cancer diagnosis, what does an oncologist do? Well, he comes and fills up your calendar for the next 18 months. <laughs> and you have a place to put that fear, yep. which is now I'm busy for the next 18 months. I don't have to think about all the things that just hit me in the face around yes. what do I do with my financial? How do I take care of the kids? Do I have enough money when I'm gone? All those things that happen to people and then their surrounding family. If you had an advanced multifaceted advocate that immediately jumped into, into, into position, I think that changes our, our paradigm like no other thing I can think of. I love that. Excellent. 
Well, Jeremy, it's been a real pleasure chatting with you today about your passions for transforming the healthcare industry. Thanks so much for joining us today on Oliver Wyman Health. And thank you so much. This has been a great opportunity. I appreciate it. The Oliver Wyman Health Podcast is brought to you by the global management consulting firm, Oliver Wyman. For more information on today's episode, visit health.oliverwyman.com, follow us on Twitter at OWHealthEditor, and subscribe on iTunes.